You're listening to the Moonlighters, the Yale Internal Medicine Podcast. Talking with expert guests, dropping expert knowledge. This is your morning report fix on the radio. Your daily dose of internal medicine. I just came up with that. <laughs> Welcome to the Moonlighters, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, today we have a, an excellent episode for you. We have actually a, a special guest here. One of our second-year residents at Yale, Dr. Keith Love. He has a special interest in cardiology, and uh, he's going to kind of lead the episode today. We also have uh, our famous co-host, Gabrielle Wilson, <laughs> as well, as usual, who will be here, too. So thanks for coming, guys. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. So today's topic, we're going to go through hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we have a special guest with us, our very own Dr. Daniel Jacoby of the Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Jacoby received his MD here at Yale uh, before completing his residency over at Mount Sinai and his fellowship in cardiology at Columbia Presbyterian. He then found his way back to New Haven, where he now specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of heart failure and cardiomyopathy. He's the director of the Comprehensive Heart Failure Program and is the founder of the director of the Cardiomyopathy Program. He focuses on the diagnosis and the treatment of hypertrophic, dilated, arrhythmogenic, and restrictive cardiomyopathies, as well as the evaluation for causes of sudden death. And he also runs a pretty mean 5K. <laughs> so he's got a lot going for him. Yeah, thanks for the yeah. boost. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I build you up for the episode here. That's good. That's good. I run a pretty good 1K, yeah, yeah. usually. You know, I mean, I run half of it and walk the other half, but... <laughs> All right. So we're talking about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy today. And why is this an important topic? So our focus will take us through common presentations and manifestations of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We'll have a chance to um, kind of tease apart the heterogeneous etiologies of what is likely an under-recognized spectrum of disease and talk about how the underlying pathophysiology should guide our initial and chronic management of the disease. We'll also discuss how to counsel our patients about life with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So let's get started with a case. Great. So we're going to talk about Mr. H. Mr. H is a 37-year-old man with no past medical history, and he uh, first comes into his primary care provider's office after passing out. Reports that one week ago he was playing pickup basketball and experienced sudden chest tightness followed by lightheadedness and loss of consciousness. He regained consciousness seconds later. All of his friends were standing around him. He was asymptomatic at that point and then he denied any symptoms thereafter. He states that he felt normal before the game, felt normal after the game. He tells you this is the first time he's ever passed out, and he wonders if maybe he was just dehydrated. Today in the office, again, he states that he's feeling quite well. So, Dr. Kobe, um, so with this patient's PCP, uh, the primary care physician, what more history would you want right off the bat? Yeah, this is a, I mean, this is a scary episode. A 37-year-old healthy person should not pass out. I mean, in general, I, I would guess that no one sitting in this room has passed out uh, recently. It, it's a rare event for someone to pass out. And for someone to pass out while they're doing sports activity is extremely rare and usually is a big red flag for bad stuff. So I'm already very worried as the person's PCP. First thing I'm saying to the guy is, good job coming in. Well done. I'm glad you didn't blow this off. I would want to really pry in a little bit more into whether there was any prodrome associated with this. He mentions that he has a little bit of lightheadedness before the loss of consciousness, and I think that could potentially be an important piece of information. He mentions that he thinks he was dehydrated. I'd like to dig in and find out exactly what he means by that. Did he go out and was he out till 2 in the morning drinking the night before? You know, got up, skipped breakfast, and went to play his, his game? 
if that's the case, maybe it is dehydration, although I'd still be highly suspicious. And then I'd automatically jump into whether there was any family history of similar episodes because as a young person with no other problems, that would be of interest to me. By the way, I also want to know, does the guy smoke? You know, we would already know, is he obese? What's his BMI? We want to kind of lay the, lay the groundwork of understanding you know, what are his cardiovascular risk factors for atherosclerosis? Because all things being equal, even though he's young, what's the most common cause of cardiovascular disease? It's atherosclerosis. So that sort of ties in a little bit with what immediately hops up to our, our differential diagnosis. And you alluded <clears throat> to some scary things and some common things. At this point, uh, what would you say are your top three things that you're thinking for this guy? And what do you have so far to support those? Okay. So... I once got made fun of mercilessly as a resident. Just once. Because it was only happened to me one time. All the other times, people were totally laudatory. Mm-hmm. But this one totally unusual time, someone came up to me and was like, your note has so many differential diagnoses in it. It's hilarious. It's mm-hmm. so obvious the guy has a UTI. Why do you have this long differential diagnosis? But I've always been someone to kind of play out all the different possibilities because if you don't – and this is – kind of something that I'm sure everybody's heard before. But if you don't think about it out of the gate, you're probably not going to think about it. It's whatever you put into the basket in the beginning is what you pick out of the basket. You pick something out of the basket at the end. So I would be really broad with this. I'd be thinking about coronary atherosclerosis. I'd be thinking about all the billions of different kinds of sudden cardiac uh, death-associated syndromes. I'd be thinking about autonomic dysfunction. I'd be thinking about drugs alcohol, you know, illicit substances, behavioral lifestyle items. I'm afraid to say you got to think about malingering. I mean, I don't think about that all the time with my patients, but if you don't have it in the basket, you know, Munchausen's type behavior and malingering, you're never going to pick it up. So there's a big, broad differential for this kind of thing. At the very top of it is atherosclerosis and inherited sudden death and coronary anomalies. So when you see someone who's young, who's exercising, the anomalous coronary artery has to be one of your differential diagnoses as well. Yeah, so this is, yeah, this is a pretty interesting case. We created it, so of course it's interesting. But uh, it's, <laughs> it's perfect. Um, you know, essentially syncope, you know, and I always think syncope is like a, a you know, great case because it does have a wide differential. And um, I wanted to kind of get your opinion on the prodrome. Like what are key words that you hear where you're like red flags are going off and you're like, uh-oh, this is serious. You know, this isn't a vasovagal. This is, you know, something else. Well, we said one of them, which is exercise. So people don't have vasovagal episodes when they exercise. I mean, it's very unlikely. Immediately post-exercise, you do see it. You can see someone. But in the middle of exercise, not as much. So exercise is a red flag. This guy reports a little bit of lightheadedness. And chest tightness, which is a prodrome that, you know, makes you think that there could be a cardiac etiology. The lightheadedness alone, if, if you just have someone say, well, and this is not rocket science, if you just have someone say, well, I sort of got lightheaded, everything started spinning and I went down, that could be vasovagal. But usually the prodrome is pretty extensive. People feel not well. They start to sweat. You know, they realize that things aren't going well. Frequently, there's an opportunity to sit down that they don't take. That's common. But I have had patients who have what in the end turns out to be autonomic dysfunction, vasovagal syncope, non-arrhythmogenic syncope. That happens really, really fast. So it's not a total rule out. And this guy, 
the chest pressure, the lightheadedness, and then what I interpret as probably very rapid loss of consciousness mm-hmm. is, I think, and during exercise are all red flags for non-vasovagal syncope for, or what we would batch as cardiovascular or cardiac syncope. All right. So on further discussion, he reports mild worsening of exercise tolerance over the last year. In discussing his family history, he reports his father died in a drowning accident and a paternal uncle died suddenly of a heart attack at age 45. Otherwise, he has two children who are in good health. So what is sudden cardiac death and how do you kind of confirm or refute this? Well, this is a very interesting piece of information. Do you ask your patients about drowning? I always ask my patients about this because when I first started practicing in this field, the guy who I was working with, this guy named Professor William McKenna, who was a big, huge figure in this field, would see all these patients with me. And when patient would say the usual thing of, yeah, well, my uncle died and, you know, he would say, well, how did he die? Oh, he had a heart attack. Well, describe to me what happened to the heart attack. Well, he drowned. The, the, the doctor said he had a heart attack while he was swimming. And then the follow-up question was, was he a good swimmer? Where was he swimming? Was he swimming in a swimming pool? Mm-hmm. Was he in huge waves at a Meswamakit? Mm-hmm. You know, was he surfing 30-foot waves? Or was he just, like, paddling around in the lake? Because also drowning for adults who know how to swim, who are not in a bad situation, is extremely rare. You get pulled out by a riptide, okay, you're surfing, whatever, you're trying to save somebody. Yes, you hear about those cases. But for for kids, sadly, you know, or for people who are imbibing alcohol, it happens. But for grownups who know how to swim, it's a rare event to drown because you kind of know your limits and you get, you know, you don't get into that situation. So the fact that his father died drowning is odd. That jumps, mm-hmm. that jumps out immediately. And there are certain sudden death syndromes that are associated with swimming. In fact, one of the long QTs, I'm going to get it wrong, which one, I don't know if it's one, two, or three, is actually associated with sudden death during swimming. And so when you hear about sudden death with, with drowning, it sets off a red flag. And then the other thing that happens is paternal uncle died suddenly of a heart attack. We get this all the time, right? Because... People, doctors, pathologists, everybody, we, we have to give an answer to the struggling family. And historically, you either tell the person it was a stroke, you tell them it was a heart attack. So I always have the follow-up question. What do you mean? What happened? Were you there? Do you know the details? Did he grab his chest? Would he have known atherosclerotic heart disease? Did he have an autopsy? Or did he just die suddenly standing at the bus stop and the doc said, well, this is, you know, the heart attack because he doesn't have any other explanation. Frequently also what you see is, not to get too long-winded about it, but there is a very strong belief, probably by all of us in this room, even though we don't really probably obviously admit to it, that somehow illness is a moral failure. And we, in the old days, 2,000 years ago, illness was totally a moral failure. If you got leprosy, it's because you did something wrong. Now we've kind of gotten away from that, but not completely, particularly in cardiovascular disease, right? Are you a smoker? Are you diabetic? Are you fat? Do you exercise? Do you not exercise? There's this perception that if you do the right stuff, you shouldn't get something bad shouldn't happen to you. So very frequently, family will say, my uncle died, but he was a drinker and he didn't take care of himself, but I take care of myself. So you get that in families too, but you got to sort of push that out to the side because everybody needs an explanation. So this history of two people with sudden death, presumably before age 50, 
um, we didn't get the age of the dad, but let's just say two people with sudden death at a relatively young age is already jumping off the page as concerning. What is sudden death? Sudden death is death within an hour of symptoms, technically, for like a, re- for like a trial. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that would be sudden death from uh, within an hour of symptoms. But um, so like you cut your chest, your chest pain, dead within an hour, that's pretty much like sudden death. But when we think of sudden death, we think of it as like immediate. Like, mm-hmm. I'm talking to you right now, head goes down on the table, dead. And that's what we see in the hospital, too, when patient codes, you know, they're talking to you and then they're not talking to you. Mm-hmm. So that's sudden death. It's really hard to confirm or refute it. I've gotten autopsy papers from people. Uh, a lot of times families do keep autopsies from their relatives and you can get those sent to you. Mm-hmm. So it just depends how hard you want to dig in. I would go full blast on this guy because he's got two kids. He's alive. He either tried to die or just had a vasovagal because he drank too much the night before. But you don't care about that. If that happened, who cares? You care that he, you know, someone who has this happen to him is at risk of dropping dead. So either, and he's got two kids, and they're going to be potentially at risk if there's a genetic problem. So you're going to really dig into this family history. I'll keep my next answer shorter. <laughs> I mean, I'll I save some steam for later. Yeah. <laughs> got a whole episode. Oof, here. I might need to take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> That was full of awesome information. I feel like we can end the episode there. Yeah. <laughs> Enough. I, mean, I never right, thought about Because my wife is calling on the other line. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on physical exam, his PCP notices a systolic murmur along the left sternal border and apex, which becomes louder with Valsalva maneuver. The murmur does not radiate to the carotids, though there is a soft radiation to the axilla. So Dr. Jacoby, when you're approaching a patient like this, do you think you could take us through... Um, just in general, I guess, how you approach the physical exam, and then specifically if you hear a murmur, how you practically go through these different maneuvers to try and figure out what the source of the murmur is? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when you tell your patient that they have a heart murmur, they get very worried. Did you ever go through that? You say, yeah. oh, I hear a little murmur. They go, what? A murmur? What? What is that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the problem with murmurs are that we now have echocardiography, and the stethoscope is a 100-year-old technology. So I'm not trying to say that it's not important, and I'm going to tell you what I think about it, but I just my minute for, like, plugging point-of-care echo and advancing technology of physical exam. And I think, you know, the day in cardiac – I teach cardiac physical exam to the PAs. I used to teach to the medical students for many years. And uh, so I'm, I'm in favor of knowing the cardiac physical exam, but I think we have to recognize that there are some significant limitations to it that can be resolved with very simple, readily available technology that you can get on your iPhone right now. Okay, so that being said, there's the overall gestalt. So, um, you know, you got to look at the patient uh, from head to toe. How do the ears look? How does the neck look? Uh, is there a shock of white hair? You know, there are certain things that can trigger your thinking, oh, maybe this is a syndromic, you know, episode. You know, I'm always looking to see whether there's underlying myopathy. What's the muscle strength like? Is the person able to get up from the chair easily? Do they have hypertrophied calves? Is there muscular dystrophy there that's been missed? Do they have, you know, normal grip strength? Do they have neuropathy? I don't have a needle to prick for neuropathy, but usually they'll tell you if they can feel stuff. And then for the cardiac-specific physical exam, the right way to do it is to really have the patient lying down, listen to them when they're free breathing in all the usual places, and then really take a careful listen during expiration. You're listening really hard for any kind of murmurs over the sort of aortic region because you want to know whether there's any outflow obstruction, I think, because one of the things that leads to syncope is 
hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with left ventricular outflow obstruction. And there's a pretty typical murmur for that. And it sounds a heck of a lot like aortic stenosis. Uh, the difference between this murmur and aortic stenosis is that you can really provoke an outflow obstruction murmur. There can be almost no outflow obstruction murmur when the person's just lying comfortably free breathing at rest. But if you sit them up and have them do a big chest valve salva, you can almost always hear a murmur come up immediately after they've released their breath and started breathing again with the Valsalva. And if you hear that kind of provoked murmur, it's really a hallmark of hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And that can lead to syncope. Mitral regurgitation doesn't lead to syncope. Um, aortic stenosis, of course, we all know can lead to syncope, but it shouldn't be provocable in that particular way with Valsalva. In fact, if you sort of reduce the ventricular filling, the aortic murmur can go down with Valsalva as opposed to up with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So you can go through these various maneuvers, squat to stand, Valsalva, and see whether you can provoke any kind of murmur that would make you think there's left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Radiation to the carotids is any murmur that occurs near at the aortic valve, I would assume would be something that would be hard to differentiate by radiation to the carotids. And I'll be honest with you, I don't use that as a significant factor in my physical exam. Although historically, I guess there are certain things you can do. And then, um, I don't know if you consider this part of the physical exam, but you should always do orthostatics, which is a real mm-hmm. pain, but you got to you know, get the cuff out and do it. Like, do it. Yeah. You can't bill for that. Yeah, usually uh, order it and uh, in the hospital and then... Uh, Never, Never done gets the done, yeah. <laughs> After two liters of fluids, yeah. it gets done. You have, yeah. to, you have to do it yourself. If yeah, you're exactly. Do it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when we talk about this murmur that gets uh, invoked by the Valsalva, and you talk about doing this sort of sit-forward big chest Valsalva, what are you actually hearing there with the outflow tract that is coming up, and why are you hearing that? Well, you've taken airplane flights before, and the plane lifts off the runway for the same reason that you hear a murmur during Valsalva with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because there's something called the Bernoulli effect. And when a fluid or a gas has to travel more rapidly next to one that's traveling slowly, the pressure is decreased in the area where the blood is traveling more rapidly. So what happens with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that the anterior mitral leaflet or leaflet apparatus is relatively closely approximating the the hypertrophied interventricular septum. And as the heart squeezes the blood out, the blood has to accelerate around this convex, hypertrophic, overgrown piece of muscle that's close to the mitral valve. And as the blood gets through there, it decreases the pressure in that area and sucks the mitral leaflet apparatus over to touch the interventricular septum. And just like rocks in a stream that cause the water to gurgle, if you distort the laminar blood flow, you hear a murmur. And so you're actually hearing the blood squirting past in this turbulent fashion, this obstruction between the mitral valve and the interventricular septum. And we refer to that as SAM, systolic anterior motion of the mitral leaflet. There's many factors that kind of feed into having that. But with Valsalva, one of the things that you see that happens is that you temporarily underfill your left ventricle. And so there's, there's less preload. And so you get this in, increased approximation of the hypertrophic segment with the mitral leaflets. And so you can actually provoke more Bernoulli effect or, or make the Bernoulli effect more effective by bringing those two things closer together by having less filling of the left ventricle. And can we use that to explain why we're seeing syncope in that patient population? This is a huge factor, uh, Keith. I'm glad, glad you asked that because there are many patients walking around today who have defibrillators because they had hemodynamic syncope with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for sure. 
because you can have syncope just from that phenomenon. And we don't know in this patient. Now, I'm, again, we have all this other stuff. His dad died. His uncle died. He died very, you know, he passed out very quickly. So if this turns out to be the diagnosis, you know, we would still have to be very suspicious of arrhythmia. But people do pass out. I have patients who pass out all the time from this or get to near syncope from this. And then they would get a myectomy or an alcohol ablation and they would feel better and they would stop happening. One of the things that you note about that, though, is there's almost always a lead-in in a prodrome, and it's almost always associated with postural change or activity. So the classic is, Doc, I drove my car to work. There's a very, I, it's an hour drive. There's a very slight hill up to the stairs that I have to take up to the front door. When I get to the top of the stairs of the front door, I always feel like I'm about to pass out. And one time I did. Or I, was, I had a glass of wine, Thanksgiving dinner. I sat and watched a football game for two hours, and then I had to go to the bathroom. So I got up off the couch and boom because you're all vasodilated, a glass of wine, big meal, all the blood is in your stomach, you watch a football game, and boom, you go down. So there are some environmental factors that can kind of tell you what it is. Um, okay. Excellent. So enough of that stethoscope nonsense. Uh, we're going to... Complete garbage. In, complete, yeah, rubbish. It's a good rubbish. decoration. Rubbish. Patients like it, but... Right, totally. Uh, so we get an EKG on this guy in the office. Uh, it reveals increased precordial voltage with left ventricular hypertrophy and prominent Q waves in the inferior and the lateral leads. We also get a little bit of blood work right off the bat. It's notable for an elevated BNP to 800, and his primary care provider then orders a transthoracic echo and refers to your office. So can we just unpack this a little bit? We'll start off with the EKG, and again, to reiterate that, we're seeing LVH, or left ventricular hypertrophy, prominent Q waves in the inferior and lateral leads, and then some increased <coughs> precordial voltage. Yeah, well, you spelled it out. I mean, this is this is looking a lot like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You have to be a little bit cautious because the guy's an athlete, I'm assuming. He played basketball. He's a relatively young guy. So, you know, if the guy's out on the basketball court three, four days a week, if he's exercising, he can have increased voltage. The Q waves, you said they're in the inferior leads. Yeah, Q waves and inferior leads are suspicious. Not They're not diagnostic. It could be... I don't know how, how tall the guy is. Could be, you know, something about his body habitus. Could be doing that. So LVH, some Q waves and fairly. I'm suspicious, but I'm not sure. If you told me he's also got significant T wave inversion across the anterior precordium, now I'm really worried about it. Or even out laterally. Then I really think hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is coming big into the differential diagnosis here. But this could be a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy EKG. And then you said the BMP is elevated? Yeah, elevated to 800. Okay. So... Uh, that's really, really interesting fact. So, I mean, we always associate elevated BMP with heart failure reduced ejection fraction, sometimes heart failure preserved ejection fraction, but we, you know, it's not usually associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I would guess that most people walking around don't necessarily think about BMP as a marker for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but it is. And we are, uh, this is actually public data, so we presented at European Society of Cardiology in August, the, I think it was... 36-week uh, data from the Pioneer study, which was a phase two study of an ATP myosin modulator that really is a negative inotrope used for obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We had 21 patients in the initial study. One had dropped out of the initial study because of AFib. Then I think it was six or seven patients ended up going for a surgical myectomy in between the end of that study and the initiation of the long-term access to the drug study. So there were 13 patients who continued on in the study. 
So of the 13 patients who continue for 36 months, their BMP started on average of around 1,500. These are patients who had class two or three heart failure type symptoms, some limitation, from some limitation to a lot of limitation with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, normal hyperdynamic ventricles did not have volume overload, just obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And their BMP levels basically normalized on the therapy that also reduced their um, obstruction to basically normal without dropping the EF substantially. So my point in telling that long story is to say that BMP looks at this point like a reasonable marker of symptomatic obstruction and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So I don't know what to say exactly about the BMP. The BMP at this point, the EKG and the BMP are nonspecific. The guy's got a murmur. I don't really know. I don't trust my physical exam enough to say conclusively whether this is AS, MR. I don't know whether he had the Valsalva response or not. At this point, my differential diagnosis is still dilated cardiomyopathy with arrhythmia versus hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I don't think at this point he has a primary arrhythmic disease or like, I don't think that was a a seizure or something like that. Like, I, I think, you know, I think we're dealing with the structural heart disease here at this point. And probably, I think top of the list is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And after, after that, some other version of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Just a quick question that came to mind after discussing that EKG. So you talked a little bit about how the Q waves can point you in the direction of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, though not definitely specific for that. Why? Can you explain why you would get Q waves on an EKG in a patient like this? Is it because there's fibrosis in the area of hypertrophied ventricle? or Because I see Q waves and I think of old infarct. That's, you know, yeah. how I've trained myself. So what makes you think that this could potentially point towards hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Well, you raise a good point, and I didn't say that, but obviously ischemic heart disease is still in the differential diagnosis, as, are, as is anomalous coronary artery. And there is no way to be specific about that um, with regards to the EKG. I don't know physiologically why patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy get, get Q waves in specific leads, yeah. and some don't. There are some patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that have normal EKGs. It's not, though for the same reason that patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy get it. Because in those patients, the Q waves can actually tell you where the infarct was. In this case, if you do an MRI in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with Q waves, you're not going to see transmural fibrosis in the inferior wall because of those Q waves. You may see fibrosis. Over 70% of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have fibrosis apparent on MRI when you do the MRI but it's in all kinds of different distributions. Okay. Most of it is not very, very severe. And it's rare to see transmural. You can see it, but it's much more rare, and it doesn't distribute according to the EKG. Okay, that was kind of my question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One ED doc told me if you see dagger Q waves, it's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Is that just like a association that is like a knee-jerk reaction, or is that something that holds weight? Send that person to me. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I've never heard of that before. Oh, really? The okay. dagger, the, the word dagger and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy go together on echo. Okay. So you see these dagger-shaped continuous wave Doppler tracings going through the left ventricular outflow tract because as systole progresses, the obstruction becomes more severe. So, the sl- so instead of being a nice curved sort of U-shape, parabola like you get with MR where it goes up and then it goes down. This one gets worse and worse and worse. So it kind of cuts out like a dagger on one side. It's inverse and then it goes straight down. So that's the dagger that I know about in HCM. But you know, I'm open to new information. (laughs) (laughs) 
I might be uh, getting that wrong and uh, mix the old echo with the kitsch. Yeah. <laughs> edit that out. Yeah, we'll edit that. We'll edit that. So here we are. We got this case, and uh, you know, it sounds a lot like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm not a esteemed diagnostician, but it does sound like that, and that is the title of the episode. But um, <laughs> so, Doctor Jacoby, suspend your disbelief. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, they come to you. They probably already have an echo before they get referred to you. But um, I'm sure you're going to be looking at this echo yourself, you know. And, like, what specifically, like, you're sitting down at, at the computer. What are you looking for and what is important to you? Yeah. This is the key thing because the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's an imaging diagnosis. So whether you're looking at echo or MRI, you need a picture of the heart to make the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy if you really want to be sure because the diagnostic criteria are dependent upon finding greater than 15 millimeter wall thickness in at least one segment in the left ventricle in the absence of abnormal afterload or other stimulus for hypertrophy. So finding 15 millimeter wall segment in someone with severe AS, not good enough, can't give the diagnosis. Person's blood pressure is 180 over 110 every time they come to the office, not good enough, can't give the diagnosis. But a person comes in, even mild hypertension, even mild um, aortic stenosis, no real good reason to have severe hypertrophy. You find 15 millimeters of wall thickness in the left ventricle. You have pretty good case for diagnosis. So that's the first thing I'm looking for. The other thing that I'm looking for is anything in terms of making the diagnosis that's going to be what I would call a phenocopy of this. So there's lots of things that can cause hypertrophy that aren't dependent on afterload abnormality that can also, like amyloid, for instance, mm-hmm. can cause severe hypertrophy with no elevated afterload and they get wall thickness, you know, greater than 15. And then there are some, some other sort of phenocopies of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Some people call them subtypes, mitochondrial disease, syndromic diseases, infiltrative diseases, like glycogen storage diseases that can cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy-like physiology and imaging, but without being the sort of the classic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So I'm looking for all that stuff. One of the big clues is if you see increased wall thickness, but decreased wall motion, it's probably not straightforward hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I've seen that mistake made before. Someone coming in with acute sarcoidosis leading to inflammation, severe hypertrophy, but with focal wall motion abnormality in that area. Given the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, treated for as if hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, treated as if burnt out hypertrophic cardiomyopathy later with poorly functioning ventricle, sent for heart transplantation, diagnosis post-transplant, sarcoid. Oh so that God. happens. But that's to say, like, you can't just put your blinders on and see thickness. And I get patients with Fabry's disease. One in, about one in 500 patients referred for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have Fabry's disease. Amyloid, much more common. You see it all the time. People referred for HCM actually have amyloid. Totally different treatment, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. We know that. Yeah. And then you're looking at the atrial findings, the LVOT gradient, the mitral valve, um, the right ventricle, uh, whether there's an effusion, all the usual echo stuff. That's why you keep your differential broad. Yeah, <laughs> that's could be why. sarcoid on pathology. That's why you keep it. <laughs> it's no one Fabry's wants to look like a huge sarcoid. Idiot. Yeah. yeah, wow, that is crazy. Yeah, Jeez. yeah. If you live like so, I live on the safari in Africa. Like that's yeah, where. That's so yeah. it's easy for me. I I, I carve myself out this space of mm-hmm. practice where what I f- I'm looking for the zebra all the time because that's my comfort zone. That's why I got made fun of in residency that one time. And, <laughs> and, 
I feel like, you, you know, like doctors have this muscle and their skill is like when something doesn't make sense, you need to have that alarm that go off and be like, I got to stop and I got to look at this a little bit harder. Yeah. And what's the environment that allows you to do that? I, we don't really have an environment like that. You have to carve yourself yeah. out that yeah. environment. I mean, if that's one of the things that you need to do as an individual. I think that's, that's the key. If all the drivers in your practice environment are telling you, don't stop, don't listen to that voice, then you're eventually going to cave. Most people are going to cave because it's really hard. But if the drivers in your environment are telling you, bonus, you found it, you didn't let that patient go by, you did the right thing, then you will do that. I think at Yale, we do that. I think we create an environment where we do tell people, hey, great job. You didn't make the wrong diagnosis, both in training and in practice. But you got to watch out. In modern medicine, you can plug yourself into an environment where you might end up feeling like that's a tough thing to do. So we're going to actually take a pause here. We'll break this episode into two parts. And so we'll stop here. And next time, we'll be back with Dr. Jacoby to focus on management and counseling of these patients. Thanks for listening to The Moonlighters. We'll see you next time.